Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio. Beth Green and James Maynard, your usual hosts, are on retreat this week. So we are Christine Benton, your host, and I am Helen Hillix, your co-host. This week's show is the Rap Revolution Revelation. Let the phenomenal rap artist Prince EA smash any stereotypes you've got left. She had to admit it, when host Beth Green first heard rap, she thought it would never last. Wrong, and she's smiling about it now, because rap has produced some important voices speaking the truth, waking us up, and turning people's heads around. Today's show is an interview with positive rapper Prince EA, who reveals what's with the name, what's his background, how rap turned his life around, and more. For those who haven't heard of Prince EA, he's a phenomenon, a super conscious positive rapper with a love for all of us and a keen eye for our nonsense. And he has millions of followers. If you didn't hear his earlier interview with Beth, we're bringing it to you again today, along with the latest news of the inner revolution, some discussion, and we hope to have time for a few callers answering the question of what turned you around. As I mentioned, this show will be guest hosted by the charming Christine Benton, who is relieving Beth and James as they briefly disappear into the forest far from the internet. Our regular host will be back next week, but for now, tune into this show. You'll be happy to meet this young man. And here's Christine. (laughs) Thank you, Helen. (laughs) Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. And and thank you also, Helen, for co-hosting so that Beth and James, as you said, could uh, head head deep into the forest. And we do have a great show today. It's a little bit different than usual, folks. We're going to um, start with news of the inner revolution. Then you're going to hear um, Beth's interview of Prince EA. He's a great, great guy. He's got a great story. And um, the other thing that I wanted to say is um, I just love this guy. I ran into him a couple of months ago at the Wisdom 2.0 conference in San Francisco. And he's just, uh, he's very inspiring, also very humble. Um, but first, why don't, oh, and then what I really want to emphasize is that after you hear the interview, and please stick around, we'll still have some time to talk about it. We'll reflect on it. We're going to take your calls. And we have a, a really good question to pose to you. Prince EA is going to talk about what turned him around in his life, and we're going to ask you to call in and share with us what it is that turned you around, and that'll make more sense as you listen to the interview. But first, we're going to do news of the inner revolution. Helen? Yes. Thank you, Christine. Let's start with that news. A lot has happened this past week, from the Panama Papers to increases in the minimum wage. Our first story is from NPR submitted by none other than our usual host, Beth Green. She may have headed for the forest, but before she left, she made sure we had some great news stories. Thank you, Beth. The headline reads, Minimum and overall wages are rising, luring workers back. For workers who want to raise, this was an encouraging week, with minimum wage legislation gaining momentum and employers paying more across the board. Even a small wage uptick might be helping lure discouraged workers back into the workforce. In recent years, the percentage of people who count themselves as workers, whether employed or just seeking positions, has been shrinking. To make jobs worth the effort, paychecks have to be big enough 
to allow workers to cover their costs, such as transportation, childcare, uniforms, and such. When the Great Recession pushed down wages and killed off job openings, millions of Americans decided not to even look for work. Now the Labor Department says the workforce participation rate rose in March to 63%, the highest level since March 2014. That is an exciting story. And I can so relate. I mean, I remember when my kids were really young and, you know, I used to go to moms groups and uh, several of the moms who had been teachers did not go back to work. Uh, They weren't even making minimum wage. They were just, they were making teachers wages. But for the cost of what it would take, just like you said there, it's like transportation, it's childcare, it's wardrobe, it's all of that. Like, they weren't actually, and then taxes, they weren't actually coming out very far ahead and they just said, forget it. So I'm sure there are a lot of people um, who, uh, you know, want to be in the workforce, but the wages have been way too low. So I think this is great. I do too. And I know that, that there will be people who are afraid of the small business owners and so forth, but I think we have to just trust that the the highest good of all is being served here and we'll all adapt. Yeah. Okay, our next story comes from Mashable, submitted by our very own producer, Christine Benton. It reads, Panama Papers breaks the internet with revelations of global corruption. A year-long investigation by global journalists has revealed how a shady network of rich and powerful world leaders use offshore tax havens to hide their vast wealth, launder money, dodge sanctions, and evade taxes despite legal requirements in place that should prevent exactly those things from occurring. The Panama Papers are a collection of 11 million internal documents from Panamanian law firm Masik Fonseca. The papers shine a light on secret offshore holdings from 128 politicians and public officials across the globe, including 12 current and former world leaders. Among these are friends of Russian President Vladimir Putin, who secretly shuffled as much as $2 billion through banks and shadow companies at his behest. Another is Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko, as well as the families and associates of Egypt's former president, Hosni Mubarak, Libya's former leader, Muammar Gaddafi, and Syria's president, Bashar al-Assad. Throughout the week, more and more information has been revealed. And one of the things that I read just yesterday, Christine, was that the uh, premier of Iceland has has resigned uh, after thousands of people marched in the center Mm -hmm. of of Reykjavik in Iceland. And there are repercussions. I, I read another article today about how... Vladimir Putin himself may be engaged in this, but there's a lots of cover-up going on, and the Russians are publicizing it as a CIA effort to discredit Putin. So I right, that, of course. That was an interesting <laughs> twist. Yes. And I had read, too, about the Icelandic premier at, at, at first, and I think he said, no, I'm not going to resign. Exactly. Um, which was just astonishing because I, that meant he felt, you know, what I've done isn't that wrong. Um, but I think, you know, just seeing hordes and hordes of people um, marching and protesting, he began to see the reality, you know, of, of how other people um, felt about that situation. And 
it's kind of neat when people can make a difference that way. Um, y- you know, it was when I first saw this story come across my Apple iPad news feed, I kind of, I'd wondered for a second, because I like get the onion, you know, that like sarcastic, like mm-hmm. um, <laughs> paper um, publication. And sometimes it's hard to know what's like satire and, and what's not. And at first I was like, no. And then I, and then I read it and I realized it was Mashable. It was, you know, it was like Reuters. It was all, um, the Guardian. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is really happening. So um, I think that, you know, 11 million documents, they may not have even been able to sort through all of them yet. I know they've been working on this for a year, and there's also an incredible backstory about um, the journalists who collaborated on this wanting to expose it earlier and the decisions that they made. Um, so I'll be interested to, to hear more about it. And I think it's such a wonderful piece of news for the inner revolution because these people that are rich and powerful are being exposed and held accountable. And I think it emboldens more and more people to wake up and see what's happening and that mm-hmm. we do have a voice. We can change things and we're not just victims of the rich and powerful. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, while some are trying to evade taxes, Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield of Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream are taking a different tack. Our next article was submitted also by Beth Green and is found in the Huffington Post. Beth and Jerry said they'd love to get taxed at a higher rate. They told the Huffington Post, we've been trying to get taxed at a higher rate for years. Just because you happen to have a bunch of money doesn't mean you should give up on the idea of justice and equality. I love that. Mm-hmm. The, two have, the two have been very vocal about their support for Bernie Sanders and his tax plan. They wrote an op-ed against tax cut nutters in Congress in, 20, <laughs> in 2015 in April, and they put their support behind the Occupy Wall Street movement in 2011. Now, that's also a fantastic article, and I love hearing that, that not all very wealthy people want to hoard their money, that there are people Mm -hmm. who want to pay taxes and support the infrastructure. Yep, including my husband and me, I suppose. (laughs) I ran our situation through some election thing, and, you know, with every candidate, you know, we'd pay, like, the same except for Bernie Sanders, and it was, like, seven or 8,000 more. I was like, oh... But, you know, if that's, if, you know, if his values and principles align, you know, with ours, then, then that's where we vote. And so, I, you know, I can see how people wouldn't. A lot of people are, you know, struggling so much, and we definitely don't have that money sitting around. But um, that is kind of exciting that Ben and Jerry came out with that. Well, and it reminds me of the potluck revolution that Beth founded and that, you know, you can all hear about both on the radio and on uh, her YouTube video channel, Beth Green TV, about everybody bringing what they have to share. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Ben and Jerry have a lot to share. <laughs> mm-hmm, they do. That's true. And they want to share it instead of put exactly. it in some offshore, weird, Panamanian, you know, situation. So, yeah, <laughs> good for them. That's and great. If, you know, and if more of the wealthy... Exactly. It's heartening. And if more of the wealthy would share what they have, it wouldn't be such a strain on those of us who have so much less. It's true. 
True. Another article from the Huffington Post brings us the story of a library that offers homeless people mental health services and it's working. This article I saw and Beth also sent in, so we kind of found it simultaneously. Of the 5,000 people who visit the San Francisco Public Library every day, about 15% of them are homeless. After years of watching this underserved demographic float through to get internet access, a restroom, and often just refuge from the cold, the library realized it was an auspicious position to stage effective interventions. So, in 2009, the library hired Leah Esguera, who is believed to be the nation's first psychiatric social worker to be employed full-time at a library. Since the program started, about 150 homeless people have reached have received permanent housing, and another 800 have enrolled in social and mental health services. Now, former homeless people are becoming, quote-unquote, health and safety associates, partaking in a 12-week vocational rehab program before being employed to help the library and the restroom stay clean and running functionally. Now, there are 24 public libraries that provide support systems for homeless patrons, And in Pima, Arizona, nurses roam the county's 27 libraries offering blood pressure checks and identifying people in need of medical care. The programs are humanizing homelessness through the library. I I love this article. Uh, Being in the mental health profession myself, I started my career working at a facility that served uh, many homeless mentally ill people. The, the most acutely mm-hmm. mentally ill. Mm-hmm. And believe me, we, we think, oh, that would never happen to me. But I remember, and this was 30 years ago, I remember um, one man who was a Northwestern University professor. Mm. But, but because he was mentally ill and our country does not serve mental illness well, mm-hmm. he, ended, he ended up being on the streets in San Diego, mm. homeless. Mm. So I love this story, and I love the fact that that the library is the place that they're receiving these benefits because it it's they can do it there with dignity. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the woman who was, like you said, the first like um, psychiatrist to be employed by a, a library system. Um, I think she was saying that it, it really does change, like. It has a sense of humanity to it. And she said it's one thing to go out to people when they're on the streets. Um, it's another when they're in the library. There's just something different about um, the environment and, you know, that they've put structure around this and, and made it acceptable and, you know, a, uh, I don't know, just an intentional way of supporting people and respecting them. I think it's wonderful. I do, too. And the library represents education, and mental health services are so much about educating people about what's really happening with them and why. That's true. Well, good. I think, is that the last? That's that's the last. Okay. All right. So we have coming up now this interview between Beth and Prince EA. And afterward, um, stick around because we are going to take your calls and we're going to talk about the interview and also kind of what sparked you to turn around in your life. So 
Let's go. Now, the first thing is I don't really know how his name is pronounced. So <laughs> I'm prepared to be embarrassed. Prince EA or whatever, could you please tell me if I'm pronouncing your name right? You got it. EA. Prince now, EA. Yay. It's like, yay. So <laughs> tell me, how did you get, where did that name come from? I know mm. everybody asks you that, but I can't help it. I have to ask you too. You know, surprisingly, not many people ask that really? uh, anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, the name comes from a place called Sumer. Uh, 6,000 years ago, um, what arose out of... Um, one, which is modern, modern day Iraq, uh, also known as Mesopotamia, Babylon, this little place called Sumer, uh, is the, the cradle of civilization. And these uh, people that lived in Sumer, the Sumerians, uh, they had a lot of knowledge, a lot of uh, technology that one would think right out of the Stone Age, how do you have this? So they created the wheel, for instance. They put 360 degrees on the circle. Uh, they knew about all the planets in our solar system without a telescope. They created the first written language, uh, cuneiform script. And I was totally fascinated by this culture. Uh, this was many years ago, um, which actually uh, was the reason why I got my degree in anthropology, but I was so fascinated by this culture. Like, how did they have such such knowledge and understanding? Um, but I started looking into their creator's creation story. Yes. And Prince EA, uh, Prince Earth, EA is his abbreviated version of Earth, um, he was their creator god, and he freed them, these people, out of bondage through knowledge and wisdom. And I took on the name because, you know, through my music, through my art, I hope to free people or at least open their minds through knowledge and wisdom. Oh, I love that story. <laughs> I'm so glad that I asked you. So the mm. correct pronunciation is EA, not EA. EA. I mean, honestly, you know, what's in the name? That was a fantastic story about uh, Sumeria. And um, I very much appreciate the spirit in which you meant that because when I first saw your name, Prince EA, I thought, what kind of a guy is that who's kind who's walking around pretending that he's a prince? <laughs> so <laughs> done before. <laughs> well, tell me, tell me, has anybody else uh, had that question about you? Thinking, you know, are you a snob here, pretending to be, uh, you know, caring about the people? Hey, <laughs> I think I think so. Not not too many, but I'm sure it's happened before. I'm sure. So now to. Uh, but, but I just want to add here, but what, what? the story that he's told us really says that it's, there's no ego here. What is involved here is being a messenger to bring information and knowledge to others that can help them. So I love wonderful. that. I yeah. love that. You know, when I see myself the same way, um, I have a picture above my desk of a horse coming down the mountain. And I know mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, that represents the higher consciousness coming down. And uh, It's got a golden light on, on the saddle. Yeah. It does. And, you know, I just feel like a workhorse that's trying to bring the <laughs> message of consciousness. So now tell me about your background. I mean, how did you get to be, what kind of a family did you come from? How did you get interested in positive rap? What was the state of rap when you got started? Was it more like gangsta or were there more positive rappers out? Like I see now that there are. So tell us about how you came to be who you are. Yeah, um, you know, hip-hop, rap music, it, it totally changed my life. Um, 
you know, growing up, uh, it's funny, I wasn't really allowed to listen to rap music. Uh, and so I, 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 I snuck around, you know, and I, I tried to listen to, you know, rappers like Biggie or, or Tupac and stuff like that. But it wasn't, it wasn't a huge, I only liked the beat, you know, I only, I only liked the instrumental, the music, the background. And uh, it was just something to listen to, and it didn't really have much impact on my life until I came into contact with conscious uh, hip hop. And this was in this was in high school, um, probably my junior senior year in high school. Uh, a kid named Corey uh, gave me this album from a guy named Immortal Technique, and it just totally, uh, you know, you talk about just a. Uh, amazing transformational experience like listening to this album he talked about everything from politics to to religion to metaphysics and it was it was his delivery was so aggressive and it was so you, you had to pay attention you know even though he was very angry it was still so in, informative and mm. you know listening to him listening to other rappers like a guy named Cannabis uh, this guy's vocabulary was just off the charts, you know, and it, it made me go to the library and start, <laughs> you know, reading, reading up on these subjects that he's talking about, trying to understand the, the verbiage, the words that he's using, uh, because I, I was just so impressed. And up until this point, I was a very complacent student. Um, but afterwards, I developed a passion for music, for education. Uh, I started sitting in front of the classroom, you know, and, and engaging my teachers, you know, really it was, it was more of a, a challenging type of thing. Like they would say something and then I would say, well, what about this, uh, this yeah, story yeah. and the things this, and you know, so it was, it was more combative, but it was still me being engaged in the educational process. And so, you know, fast forward, maybe a year after that, I started making my own music. And wait, could, wait, wait, could, could we rewind? Could, huh, sorry, but could you rewind a little bit before we fast forward? Because sure. I find this a fascinating, fascinating story and a very important one because I can see why your passion for doing positive rap, where that comes from, because it transformed your life. And mm-hmm, so... Exactly. The family that you came from, before we get to the fast forwards, yeah, I just want to stop you. The family that you came from, were they very, uh, you know, education oriented or were they more, you know, I don't know, just, you know, trying to get along or manage or where was the, what was the family environment that you grew up in? Yeah, my, my, uh, my parents definitely um, reinforced getting an education. Uh, they wanted, they, they, they tried their best to, to help me. You know, I remember my mother spending a lot of time, um, with me, helping me to, to read. Uh, you know, and it was, it was very intense sessions that we had, uh, <laughs> learning how to read. I, I couldn't, I couldn't get it, you know, and it was really? a lot of frust- frustration. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think, it, even though they reinforced education, I still was very complacent. I still only did schoolwork just to, to get by, you know, just to make them happy. It, well, I didn't have a passion for it, you oh, know, and, that, I, and I think I think for learning, you have to have a passion, you know. Okay. If you, you have to follow that which you're passionate for, you know, or about. And so yeah. it was only until I developed that did I really understand um, and that did I really want to understand um, you know, the things that my teachers were, were telling me. 
Well, that's very interesting. And, and did you have, now you said that at first when you heard this hip hop that you liked the beat, but you weren't really that interested in the words. I mean, you weren't that much right. interested in the anger and all of that stuff. But then you started hearing, okay, there was anger, but it was anger for outrage for a good cause. Right, uh, right, right. And, and okay, yeah. and that's evolving. And that evolves because I don't feel, I mean, your, your uh, rap is not, angry it's angry the way i'm angry you know what i mean it's like <laughs> yeah. you know what are we crazy you know that kind of anger mm-hmm. uh rather than kind of you would you know what i'm not gonna i'm not gonna use those words on the air but everybody knows what i'm yeah. trying to say right and uh, you yeah, know yeah. it's there's a we in this and a lot of anger is anger at others rather than mm-hmm. let's take a look at ourselves so right. how did so maybe that's part of the fast forward because what I see in you what I love about your work and why I feel like you're an inner revolutionary is that there is so much of that inclusiveness is we need to take a look at ourselves when did that come about mm. well before, one second before I get into that I just want to make something clear I did my senior thesis on hip hop and the commodification of hip hop hip hop actually started out as very educational, very informative. It was the voice of the voiceless. It was people standing up for the community, a social, socioeconomic situation. They, they wanted to, 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 to preach these messages and educate the listeners. And then it transformed and got commodified and McDonaldized. You know, now really? we see the, the corporate influence, yeah, that, that has come in and kind of hijacked the, uh, the culture. Um, when was yeah. that? When was that, Prince Ye? Because um, I'm very ignorant about hip-hop, and this is just fascinating yeah. to me, and I bet a lot of people don't know this either. When yeah. would you say that it was more giving the voice to the voiceless? Yeah, it was, it was the 70s. Uh, I mean, it, it was, it's all throughout, but in the mainstream, yeah. I guess, uh, it was definitely in the 70s when you had, in 80s, uh, when you had you know, artists like Public Enemy, uh, Chuck D, you know, these guys that, that, that were preaching, um, you know, messages and educating their, their listeners. Um, but, but even then, I mean, we, we all, there were always factions that, um, that kind of glorified materialism and things like that. And that's, it, it's all, it's hip hop. It's a culture. There's the good and the bad, but mm-hmm. the main crux that hip hop was founded upon was the positivity, was the, the enlightenment, the education, the cultural inclusivity, uh, and the love, you know, that brought wow. people together in a spirit, in that spirit of, of enjoyment and happiness. You know, that was, that was hip hop. My goodness. And because, you know, what I had heard about hip hop is there were so many awful things that they said about women. And, you know, it was like, that's my, you know, that was like where I got my thoughts. And I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just, that's why this is so fascinating. Yeah, yeah, like that that hip hop that you might, you know, see on yeah. TV or, or listen to on the radio is about ten percent of what hip hop really is. You know, oh hip hop is so is so vast, but unfortunately, you know, the corporate machines they push the message that, that sells, that get gets people's attention. Uh and that and those, you know, misogynistic uh, you know, views, partying and, and you know, that type of lifestyle is uh is often conveyed in the in the mainstream. Now, is that is hip hop an original American uh, art form? That is uh, debatable. Um, you know, some people can trace it back to to Africa, but you know, it, uh, you know, the guy's name Kool Herc, um, 
you know, when, when in the, in the seventies, when this was first starting, um, it was a, it was a DJ that mixed together a couple different like genres, reggae, uh, blues. It was a bunch of different things integrated, um, mm-hmm. disco into these, into the, into this art form, kind of a melting pot. So yeah. you can trace it, you, you can trace it back. I don't think it's, it's an official, uh, origin story mm-hmm. really. But uh, but yeah, the, the, it has it has roots that that probably go back to to Africa, depending on what you even classify as hip hop. You know. Yes, I can totally understand that. It's kind of like jazz. You know, it's like mm-hmm. <laughs> there are so many roots. So exactly. okay, so now we can fast forward um, mm-hmm. because I'd love to know how what happened to you. So you're mm-hmm. getting inspired, and you want an education. And this, mm-hmm. I know, is blowing the minds of our listeners, you know, who've been mm-hmm. listening to the same, uh, you know, the same concepts that I've been listening to about what hip-hop is. So tell us what happened next. Yeah, what happened next is I, I pursued a rap career, uh, which I, I'm still a rapper, but, you know, for about <clears throat> eight years, I've been, you know, creating content, music that was educational, it was informative, it was, uh, but it was still very competitive very compare and contrast myself with other rappers. And it was only until I stopped completely because it didn't, it didn't really make me happy anymore. Uh, the art form, while it, it, it's, it's still very beautiful and I still, I still create, you know, hip hop music. Um, the way I was doing it wasn't making me happy. It wasn't fulfilling me uh, anymore. I wasn't getting to where I thought I should be. It was a lot of uh, internal issues mixed with, uh, external, you know, life issues, things that were happening to me, they really made me put it on a pause. And so I really developed, started to develop my spirituality and, you know, reading a lot of ancient texts, you know, watching different lectures on, on YouTube, for instance, reading books and uh, audio books, everybody from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh to, to Muji to Ram Dass to uh, Alan Watts to Eckhart Tolle to all uh, the, these these individuals that really preach the, the same message of understanding the self and, uh, and being mindful, you know, mindfulness, you know, you are not the mind, you're not the body. This message really transformed me. And, you know, the urgency of this, this play that we have on life, how we, we must, we must live in the moment and do what we have to do now, you know, because we don't know when our next, uh, sun, our last sunset will be. You know, we don't know yeah. what's going to happen five minutes from now. We all we have yeah. is the now, so we must do everything, do what we want now, uh, and live our, our tr- to our truest purpose and our truest selves now, our fullest potential. So that shifted my content from the rapper com- competition. You know, the punchlines, the metaphors to a more direct message of what's important, love, kindness, compassion, uh, understanding. I started creating video logs as well, you know, uh, about how to let go of anger, how to let go of, 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 of fear and, and depression and de- these things like this. And uh, just to help people because, you know, overall, you know, I'm a, I'm a content creator. I never wanted to be boxed in with just rap, just, just music. I wanted to... to uh, to really explore all different vehicles to to convey a message, you know, I'm not I'm not biased to, to or you know attached to any any vehicle really. 
I just want to convey a message to to the to the masses, you know, and uh, and so I used the internet to do it, and it was really the not only the the reading of the literature, but also the internal uh, journey um, that opened my eyes and told me really what I what I should be doing, and uh, I've had a lot of a lot of quote unquote success, um, you know, when I when I really started to let things flow and not control. Um, you know, my life and my position as much and to really operate from my heart. That's when the success started to happen. Oh, really? Because I see so much of your work is on the internet, on YouTube, and I know there's not a lot of big bucks on YouTube. <laughs> so uh, can I ask you this very simple you know, question? Is How do you make a living when you give away your work like that? Yeah, it happens. You know, um, for me, I, I speak... Um, you know, my, my music is, uh, it's on sale, you know, I have it at iTunes. Um, you know, I, like I said, I lecture, I have merchandise, um, the, the, the videos are actually monetized, um, you know, through advertisements yeah. Yeah. on YouTube yeah. and other, other platforms. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not rich, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay. Uh, well, I doing, love that. doing what I love. Yeah. That's a great story because that's really showing you that you're being supported by people. You know, exactly. it's the people that are supporting you rather than the record companies and the powers that mm-hmm. be that are giving mm-hmm. you the support. I, I had that feeling, but I, I really wanted to ask you because I was really curious. You know, I'd like to share with you a little bit about my journey only because I think you'll see that there's some kind of a, a connection there. Of course, I'm... Mm-hmm so much older than you, I'm 70. And uh, I came up through the political, social activist movement. I was very active until my mid-30s. But there was so much anger in the movement, and I had it too. And, um, you know, I I was very angry with my fellow revolutionaries. That was... (laughs) Mm-hmm. I, mean, I was angry at the government. I was mm-hmm. angry about racism. I was angry about, you know, apartheid. I was angry about the exploitation of workers. I was angry about the war in Vietnam. I was angry about the, you know, the oppression mm-hmm. of women. You know, I mean, I, mm-hmm. and I, I really felt very angry. And then I saw so many of my cohorts. Now, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to because it's the truth. As you know, so mm-hmm. many people were uh, smoking dope and, you know, they come into a meeting and they say, yeah, man, you know. They thought they had written this great flyer. And, and I thought, what is the matter with these people? Can't they, you know, aren't they seeing the suffering that I'm seeing? You know, why aren't you doing, devoting your life to this? You know, uh, and that, but I mean, that really bothered me. And then on top of that, people started getting into this, uh, you know, throwing stones and, you know, burning cars. And, you know, what I mean, it's like. This was not helping the movement, and many of the people in them, they were police informers, and it's very obvious that they were, and they were trying to undermine the movement. Um, so, after, after, in my mid-30s, I, I was also very active in the women's movement, and the women were angry at the men, you know, but I could see the men were suffering, too. You know, like there was nobody who wasn't suffering. If, if you really look at it, the rich suffer. Uh, the poor suffer. Yeah. Everybody yeah. suffers, right? Yeah. And, 
because we're not getting what we need, even though we think we're getting what we want. And I know that's one of your messages. And so I had a, just a breakdown, a meltdown, and I had a spiritual awakening in 1978. And I started to hear the inner voice that I call God, or but you don't, I don't care what you call it. You know, it's some divine wisdom. And I started writing books and doing tapes. And I, I would open my mouth and I knew things that I had no idea how I knew them. They were just as like sitting there. And I, I, I just, it was amazing that I developed a way of uh, working with people intuitively and healing people and teaching and, and all of that. And, um, but you know what was missing for me was that activism piece. I just was, I always felt restless because I saw so much of our self-awareness. It was all about trying to make ourselves feel better or make a better life only for ourselves. And I was given the message from this inner voice that there is no personal salvation, that we are one, and that we can't thrive in a world that isn't thriving. And so that old activist energy in me was very much um, you know, triggered by that. And here it is. At this stage in my life, I'm part of the inner revolution because I see that a lot of people are just like me. That it's uh, we've come that the world has changed, and that people like you, who are you know coming up and can have so much influence, you you get it. It's not about being angry about somebody else, and it's not about being complacent or just accepting things the way they are, like so many spiritual people think they should. And it's not right. about using our spiritual power in order to meet our ego needs by manifesting mm. what we want. It's mm-hmm. about realizing our oneness and that we all have to change together. And um, I'm so excited. That's why I'm devoting my life to the inner revolution. And when I bump mm-hmm. into people like you, which we, we have these incredible guests coming on, and they yeah. all seem to understand that it's all about oneness, accountability, mm-hmm. and mutual support. That's mm-hmm. what is we all have in common. Mm-hmm. And when, wow. I see, when I see you... Uh, you know, saying things that I said 30 years ago, but nobody listened to. And I'm, I'm not saying that from an ego perspective. I'm saying that the world has changed because you're saying it. And of course, you're saying it in your own unique way. And it's having an impact. And people are responding and they're supporting you. I feel supported by seeing yeah. you get millions of likes on your the, uh, of listeners the, t- on your uh, work, that makes that supports me because yeah. we are we're really one. And I, you know, yeah. I just want to hug you. <laughs> <laughs> so, where do you see this going? Are you in contact with your viewers and listeners? Or are you having any thoughts about where this can all go? Yeah, I just create content. Um, you know, I was, you know, a couple of years ago, I uh, had a lot of goals. I had a lot of um, things that I wanted to do, wanted to achieve, expectations. And now all I yeah. do is just create from my heart. I try to, I try to put a lot of effort in, in, you know, I just do my best with what's in front of me and release it to the world. Um mm-hmm. In a in a way that that is 
because it's, it's using my, it's skillfully done. You know, Buddhism, they talk about skillful means. And, uh, it's not about really what you say, it's how you say it. It's, it's about putting the, the pill in the applesauce. You know, I, I, I like <laughs> yeah. to, I like to use different clever ways to reach these, these individuals. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, and that's all I do. And that's all I'll, I'll continue to do right now. I mean, I still, you know, I travel and things have, things have kind of come to me. Uh, I can say, you know, when I when I let go of, of I need to be here, I need to be in in one year, in five years, I need to be, I need to be doing this. You know, when I let go of that, then things started to happen. You know, then I started yes. to achieve a lot of the the old goals that I had when I totally let them go. You know, yeah. So uh, so I don't I don't know where it's going, but um, you know, all I all I want to do is just live, really live in the moment as as, as the, the purest version of myself. Uh, love and continue to create content that can galvanize individuals to, 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 you know, take that, that inner journey for inner revolution. Yes, yes, absolutely. Have you met any opposition? Um, hmm. You know, not, not really. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I don't see too much. It's not a, it's not a polarizing message, you know, really that I, that I, that I convey. It's, it's things that every human being, no matter what race, no matter what party, no matter what class you can identify with, you know, we all, like you said, we're all connected. We're all one. And I try to touch on that foundation on that ground that we all can relate to. Um, you know, we, we, we all enjoy, um, we all want to be happy. You know, that's one thing about every human being on this planet, from the, the teachers to the, to the, the, the activists, to the rapists, to the murderers. We all want to be happy. It's, for the latter group, it's their ways, their means of getting to that happiness that create more suffering for themselves and for the world. And so we're all on this journey of happiness, and we don't really know how to attain it. It's the elusive butterfly. And so yeah. me, I just, I just want to create things that can show people that, hey, happiness isn't out there. It's inside. Yeah. It's inside of you, you know. So it's, it's the way out of your pain is really the way in. You got to look in. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you're saying. Um, you know, God told me like over 30 years ago that God is the totality, which means that God is the rapist and the saint. Mm. And uh, that mm. we need to own yes. all the aspects of God. And it, you don't have to believe. I mean, I don't think of a God as the guy with a white beard or anything mm. like that. But it's like right. the totality of our consciousness at the highest level of integration. Yes. And um, so that what you're saying is so true. And I truly believe, <laughs> and I'm betting my life on it again <laughs> and again and again and again, that Deep down inside, we all know what's true, and we all know what's right, and mm. we just lie to ourselves. <laughs> and, you know, we're programmed in a certain way. We're too scared yeah. to stand yeah. up to convention. We, we all know that, that when we strike someone, that we're hurting them and it hurts us. We all know what I know that, you know, a guy who rapes a woman or vice versa, but it's mostly a guy. I've been there. I've had the experience. I've been raped. I've looked in the eyes of my rapist. You know, I, I know what they're feeling. I can feel it because I'm an intuitive. They're suffering too. Uh, you know, and 
it's so being a, a counselor too, as well as a as a teacher. You know, I get to sit with people and look into their faces and feel their hearts, and I know what they're going through, and I know how powerless they often feel about their mm-hmm. own behavior, and. Uh, uh-huh. You know, how caught people are in these uh, patterns. And it's always a blessing when you can help somebody to transform that pattern and really find what James likes to call it, and I know others have called it this too, your authentic self. And the authentic self is the oneness. I mean, it really is not what we think. It isn't that each one of us, uh, you know, I'm just sharing my own view. That's not, it's, mm-hmm. it's that, it, it's not that each one of us is going after some personal fame or ambition or whatever mm-hmm. and that that's going, you know, I, if I get this or I get that mm-hmm. or I become important. Mm-hmm. Like that's going to make any difference if I walk out the door and everyone mm-hmm. around me is starving to death. How mm-hmm. much will I care if I have an Emmy Award in my hand? Right, right. You know, wow. it's that wow. oneness in our, everybody's heart. And I yeah. feel like you've tapped into that and you're discovering that. And we must be in a brave new world because there was a time when that message was rejected. And I mm. guess, you know, partly because of climate change, which is waking up everybody, and partly just yeah. because of, I don't know why, you know, it's the times. Mm. The people are yeah. coming to this, and I'm so appreciative of it. Yeah. How can uh, people... Can I just, uh, can I just add something here? Yes. Uh, I, I see in, in, in Prince EA's videos uh, a way in which he challenges people, like in his, can we totally. autocorrect uh, human uh, ourselves, uh, about challenging people's uh, isolating themselves with their iPhones and, and their uh, different technological apparatuses, iPads and so on. Uh, and so what's interesting is that Prince EA doesn't uh, draw a lot of opposition because he communicates from a space of oneness, like a yes. caring brother. Yes. He says, brother, sister, this is what I see going on and I really care and I'm really concerned. Yeah. And so uh, I feel like you, Prince EA, are really modeling uh, that, that sense of oneness, that you're with us, that you, feel, you share your concern and you hope for us to... Uh, have a better life and have more love and happiness. And so I think that that's really a key here. I love that comment, James. Uh, how do people f- find out more about you and see your work? Because we're coming sure. to the uh, close. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Facebook, our Facebook page is Prince, it's facebook.com backslash Prince EA Hip Hop. Uh, that's probably my, my largest um, social media uh, page. Uh, it's got about about a million followers and that's probably where I post most material uh, you get updates you know with status it is stuff but also the YouTube which is youtube.com slash Prince EA and I'm also on Instagram and Twitter just Google Prince EA and it's not too difficult to uh, to find me or to contact me it certainly isn't and I am so glad that we found you <laughs> <laughs> me too <laughs> would you object for, if I'm going to give you a big hug across the continent there. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. No objections here. <laughs> Let's do it. I want to thank you so much for being with us today. We had a few technical problems, but <laughs> we seem to do that a lot. But we have overcome. And stay on the on with me a little bit after the show so that we can give a proper goodbye. And we'll see you next week. Don't forget... 
interrevolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv and you'll see Prince EA and Catherine Hayhoe and Sakina Yacoubi and some great interrevolutionaries. And we're back. That was a great interview. I love that. Some of my favorite parts are um, A, Beth saying or trying to say gangsta. (laughs) (laughs) And then later Prince EA, you know, moving his whole messaging back to and it's an inner revolution. (laughs) He sounded like if you would have seen him saying it, you know, his eyes would have twinkled and his teeth would have sparkled. So um, really, uh, but a great exchange, a really great conversation. And so, Helen, do you want to give people um, the call-in number? Just uh, we don't have a lot of time, folks. Probably just a little over, you know, five minutes. But um, we can have a couple of quick callers. So, if you could let them know what that number is, Helen. Sure, it's eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight. Eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight. Great, thank you. And the uh, the question we're responding to is, what was it that turned you around? Like, clearly, Prince a, EA was this kind of, like, complacent student just, you know, going through the motions, and then he discovers rap and his hunger to learn and desire to understand more and to make a difference were just ignited. So, um, you know, a lot of people have turning points in their lives, and we want to hear about that. So we already have a caller. And so let's bring her on. We have Tracy in Phoenix. Hey, Tracy. Hey, Christine and Helen. Hi. Hi. So what was it that that turned you around? Yeah, I wish I could say it was something altruistic, like caring about humanity. But actually, it's a bit more self-centered. I think that uh, what turned me around, well, I would say, like, what was resonating with me, what Beth was talking about, was our programming. And she mentioned, like, being too scared to stand up to convention. And I was so attached to following the convention that I got extremely anxious about everything. Mm. And I just, I started having panic attacks. I couldn't hardly leave my house. And so, you know, trying to follow the convention of everything and everyone, like, got me to a point where I could hardly function. And so the turning point for me was realizing that, you know, trying to appease everyone or do what other people want or think is, like, killing me, you know, and I have to do something different. So that was just a turning point from, you know, focusing on that to to trying to find a better way. And then over time, it's just, it's taken so long, but little by little, it's breaking that need to follow the convention and really step back and and question, you know, what we're doing and why we're doing it. And then, you know, hearing about people like Beth and Prince EA and, you know, so many of the others that have been on the show, you know, of how you can change and how we need to change. It just, it's, it's really inspiring. So I would say my turning point came from the fact that I just, I couldn't even function that way anymore, literally. And, and I had to change. Yeah. Crippling anxiety. Um, that's pretty powerful. And Helen and I were talking before the show cause we wanted to answer this question for ourselves. And we had our own kind of like moment that was similar. It's not that we were just, you know, walking along and we felt, you know, inspired and, you know, saw rainbows and stuff. Um, for me, (laughs) you know, I was, um, I was living in New York in Manhattan and I was living in a very nice place. Um, had a good job. My, um, I think it was my fiance at the time was also had a really good job and um, very attractive person. And, you know, I, 
it's kind of like you're saying, Tracy, like you're saying like, okay, here's all the things I'm supposed to do in life and I will go do them. And I did. I was very persistent and hardworking and I got the right guy in the house or condo or whatever. And, um, you know, the job and I'm in New York and everything. And I just like, I wasn't happy. And I went and I saw, um, rent and I didn't even know what it was because it had just come out and someone got us tickets and uh, I went and saw that it's a musical um, that since has been very popular and there was a song on it called No Day But Today and it like it, it sparked to me there was so much passion in the people a sense of community and friendship and adventure and they had troubles and there was death and there were so many things to deal with but they did it together and they had this incredible connection and I realized I had none of it. So mm. I think that's something that really turned me around. Um, I know we just have a few more minutes. Helen, you may want to say something about, you know, your situation as well. And then we're going to go to our, our next caller, but thank you, Tracy. Thank I'll you. just very quick. Uh, thank you, Tracy. I'll just very quickly say, I remember very well. I was 36 and I was married and had a nice home and a good job, and I just felt like something was missing. And I, I, it, it's interesting because it, it's in some ways mirrors your experience that you had everything you thought you were supposed to have, but something was missing. Mm-hmm. And it was right at that time in my life that I met Beth Green, and mm-hmm. I, I already knew that I was searching for something spiritual, mm-hmm. but I wasn't finding it. So. It was. It, that's what turned me around was meeting Beth and beginning to work with her and uh, learn from her. I'll bet there are a lot of people who could say that. <laughs> I think uh, so. She is quite a force of nature and one of great compassion and skill too. Um, I can totally relate. So let's uh, let's give one minute here to Irene from San Diego. Thanks for calling in, Irene. Hi. Uh- my, the thing that turned my life around um, was when I was 60 and got cancer. And uh, getting cancer didn't turn my life around. I just was accepting, well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And then Helen, actually, who was a friend of mine, um, gifted me with a massage therapist who had crystals. And... Um, she was working with me, and she told me that I had to decide whether or not I wanted to live. And that was a whole new idea. I, didn't, I had never, ever owned my life. I had never, ever owned responsibility for my life. And I, in fact, didn't answer it. And she, at, the, at the time, it took me two days because I was scared that I didn't want to live. And then um, after two days, I knew I had to decide whether or not I wanted to live. And, and I had to have a reason. And the reasons, I went through the usual things. You know, I want to see grandchildren, et cetera. None of them were powerful enough. And then I realized that there were aspects of myself that I had never developed. And I really, really wanted to live so that I could become who I meant to be. That's a great reason, Irene. That's the best reason. Yeah, it is. 
Um, thank you. Thanks for calling in. We have just one minute left. I would love to say so many things about our guests next week, but Helen, let's have you do that. Beth and James will be back interviewing this guest, and, and Helen, can you tell us about her? Yes. The, the title is The Fight for Diversity. Meet Whitney O'Banner, a black woman breaking the silicon ceiling. Yay. What, when you think of tech, programmers, or Silicon Valley, your first image is probably a white or Asian guy. If so, you're not alone. Even a black woman in tech can be stuck with that association. Whitney O'Banner has a story that speaks to the problem and the solution. A black woman techie, Whitney is supporting other women and minorities to stick with it and break through the silicon ceiling. A relative of the glass ceiling, and yes, Beth just made that up, (laughs) Whitney has her own story of discrimination, isolation, and self-doubt. But more than that, she can speak to what she and others are doing to change that. The new Austin campus director of Dev Bootcamp, Whitney is helping recruit and train a tech student body that matches the nation's diversity. Tech is a huge part of our world economy and culture. Discrimination matters. Get an inside view of what it's like to be a black woman in Silicon Valley and be inspired to keep breaking through whatever barriers you face. Let's welcome her. Great. And this is really um, amazing. She's written a post for leanin.org, which is um, Sheryl Sandberg's um, organization, and it's really moving. So I, I really encourage people to listen in, and we'll see you soon. Thank-, Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Interrevolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.